Hi, I'm Caroline Ford. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelization. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and with a wheezing, groaning sound, We'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is David in Chelmsford. And this is Greg in Swansea. And today we're going to be looking at Planet of Giants by Terence Dix. Now, Wikipedia tells me that this book was released in January 1990, and it also says that a lot of material cut from the televised version has been reinstated in the book. I think we've both listened to it now and have noted that it's an ecological thriller ahead of its time, presenting the folly of allowing short-term profit to result in a long-term environmental disaster. And I thought that the... um, actual story was actually pretty topical what did you make of it greg yeah i i'm very very on a similar wavelength here with that actually david i thought it was really i mean my notes i'm just looking at here you know i said that um it actually sounds bang up to date in its uh, character in its um topicality but actually i think at the time in the 60s and, and i could be completely wrong here i think that we had the beginnings of this realisation of what these chemicals, or, you know, effect that they were mm. having on the on our, on our world here, on the environment. So right. I think this was probably the dawn of it, but it's still bang up to date. And it struck well, it me is. as, yeah, yeah, it struck me as pretty hard hitting, actually. Right. It, yes, yes, I would agree with that. I mean, we've got similar concerns right now about fracking mm. and the short term... Yeah. Well, the short-term profit and the acquisition of shale gas versus the destruction of beautiful, natural open space. Yes, And the communities concerned are extremely worried about the prospect of this. So, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, yes, it's, it's ahead of its time. I think we can agree there. Yes, yeah. I think the flaw of this story, and this is not original thought on my part is that it's got two very distinct plots which never truly converge so you've got the business around the murder at the cottage with the civil servant pharaoh being murdered by the opportunist called forester but then you've got the tardis crew who are shrunk down to an inch high and those two plots never really satisfactorily intertwine for me, did you find that? Yes, I, I, 
It's, it's an interesting, um, it's a bit of a mishmash, this story. This is the problem, I think. And it's quite confused in several different ways on, on different levels. I mean, a little bit of background that I'm aware of is it was originally a four-part script, but then they realised, I believe, that this wasn't going to make four half-hour episodes of Doctor Who. So it was cut down to three episodes, wasn't it? Yes, that's true, yes. And then I believe it, that you mentioned earlier that these other parts have been reinstated for the novelisation. Now, what the the reason was for that, I don't know, because on the DVD version of this, um, they actually did a similar thing, didn't they, where they sort mm-hmm. of reinstated what that fourth episode would have been like as an optional extra. Mm-hmm. But to be perfectly honest, because of that um, lack of integration that you were mentioning, you know, that sort of disparity between the the opposing stories in here, it, it, it's better off as three damn episodes, mm. I think. Well, that's, Do you think so, David? Yes, that's certainly the version I'm looking at. I've just had a look. Where the plots do converge, of course, is right at the end, when the Doctor heats the canister and it explodes in Forrester's face. Yeah. And actually, I've just thought about this because I'm actually watching the show right now oh. and it allows the policeman to make the arrest. But it's actually this this um, deadly pesticide that Smithers has invented. The doctor's actually sort of effectively sprayed that in the face of the murderer. So he has intervened. Mm. And I've never really thought about the ethics of that before. But the first doctor later said that he only takes life when his own is threatened. He's probably blinded the man, which I don't feel as sympathetic as I perhaps should because the character is so nasty. Yes. (laughs) But I am now wondering, I am now wondering, because it's a pretty mean trick to to explode. I mean, somebody's just been killed by a can, by a compressed can, in Mm. the news. Oh, Oh. dear. I don't think you could show this these days now. It's copyable violence, I think. Of course, yes, that's right. Yeah, they're not... I mean, they, these. I mean, there's quite a few things in early classic who isn't it, that you know are questionable <laughs> today, isn't it? But this is, I mean, this is where we've got to, isn't it, with TV? You know, it, it was a sort of learning process. It was still relatively early days of TV then, wasn't it? Mm. But um, am I right in saying that this story as well was going to be the the first or one of the earliest of the Doctor Who stories? Well, it's I, it's opens the second season, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. I I thought it was going to be an earlier one than that, but it was right. I, I know that there was um a, an issue with a script that led the Daleks to be speeded into production. Well, I think oh. I remember that. I'm not sure. So yes, yeah. it's quite possible that other scripts fell through, pushing this one forward. Yeah, but I think yeah. the original season the original first season they they stopped after reign of terror but they actually had this one in the can and they had dalek invasion of earth i could be wrong yeah, so right. they took the yeah. whole arc with susan all the way through yeah but um it's, it's really quite when you see it on the screen it's it's really a very very ambitious story mm. we can mm. we can well, discuss if we think the book is very ambitious well, we let, let maybe let's look at the contrast, <laughs> because it's interesting you mentioned the ambition here. Because I'm just looking at a few stills from it, you know, and the um, like you say, the the the, 
model, the props and so mm. forth. They they're quite effective, aren't they? Those um mm. I mean there's giant matches and so oh, forth. It, it looks box, very, yes. very good. It's a sort of what what's that famous story with all the uh the little shrunken people. Oh, like Gulliver's Travels. Yes, yes, it's that sort of adventurous the pastiche feel to it, of, it? of Gulliver's Travels, which that yeah. actually came out in 1726. So oh, it's quite it old that story. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> you're right. Well, it's, it's never lost its popularity, although it's actually a um, key work of satire. But well, yes, yes, they Gulliver. Well, I, everybody knows about the voyage to Lilliput, but their yes. second book is. I've got to get this right. The voyage to Brobdingnag, where oh, Gulliver's I'm... actually in the land of giants. So right. instead of being the giant himself, he's mixing with people a lot bigger than himself. And right. it's a much... Everyone knows about Lilliput, but yes, there are definite resonance with mm. that story. Yeah, Le less yeah. satirical, I think, in this this plant in this Doctor Who version. <laughs> yes, yeah, less satirical, but as we say, in sort of up to date with the, you know, with this subject matter, which I, I think, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it, as you say, it's a relatively early when we've got the full original team here. Well, we have. Yeah, it's produced by Verity Lambert, um, mm -hmm. script editor David Whittaker. It's the full complement of the original TARDIS crew. Mm -hmm. So. And like you say, it is ambitious, you oh, know, very on ambitious. the DVD, it locks, there's some really great scenes on there, that yeah. I think. The other great prop in there is the giant telephone receiver, when they oh, get yeah. some sort of cork and use it as a fulcrum and knock the receiver off to yeah. alert the exchange. I like, you see, this, I like those sorts of things where you've got the inventiveness, mm. um, which you can easily relate to. Isn't mm. it? I, I love those things in Doctor Who, which you, you would get, you know. I mean, I would much rather, for example, you know, in earlier Doctor Who, for example, in the 70s, you know, we've just had the, the master return. And of mm. course, it was a nice rubber mask, which you whipped off, wasn't it? Now, isn't that much better than a, than a, a 1980s um, video effect going oh, over a, the top a, of them. And, a fuzzy, you know, wobbly face. Yeah. I, I, the, suddenly the face wobbles and distorts and, ah, it's yeah. Anthony Ainley. I never could have yeah. guessed that would happen. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's what I like about this sort of thing. You know, when, you, when you've when you got the Doctor Who story, it's inventiveness on a level which you can easily relate to. It gives mm. you a sense of the possibility, you know. It gets you thinking more, I think, rather than just being fed, um, as you say, like a video effect. Which mm. I, 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 so I like that. Yes, no, it's, I, the, the props are all very good and realistic in this, and they do sell the illusion that the characters are shrunken. Yes, yeah. I don't know about the um, the physics. I, I mean, I'm no physicist, but I don't know about the physics that the doctor gives of the explanation regarding um, the pressure. Is, is it displacement? He tries oh, to explain. Right. It's a load of gobbledygook. I'm not. A, I'm not a physicist either. I'm sure Brian Cox would have a view on it. <laughs> Obviously, Professor. Well, it could be Professor Brian Cox, or it could be the actor from Dundee. Both of them might have a view on that, for all I know. <laughs> well, but the, I think the I, thing I would say I, about Professor Cox is that he manages to boil the most incredibly complex ideas down into pithy, understandable sentences. Yeah. And so I yeah. think there's an implied criticism here that we didn't understand the physics of Planet of Giants. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the word which you gave is one of my favourite words, gobbledygook, spot on. It is gobbledygook. And, and that's, that's fine, you know, that's fine. But I think maybe it might have been more effective in 1964. Perhaps, it probably you know? was, because as yes. we know from modern Doctor Who, leaving the TARDIS door open doesn't have any consequence at all. In fact, you can hang out with the TARDIS door by your ankles and it still doesn't seem to lead to any particular issue. But it, this is it, you see. Yeah, this is it. This as, is... as, the, as the bounds of technology move on, um, these ideas that you know we have in earlier Doctor Who seem quaint, don't they? But uh, mm. but you know, but so that was one. But however, where we did have a lot of research and realism was in the um, the uh, you, you know the what, what's it called? D what's this chemical? Oh, DN six. DN six. DN six. Deadly no. pesticide. Pesticide. No, this is really, um, you know, bang up to date in that, isn't it? Right. I mean, we have this. What do they say? It's it's a non-discriminatory pesticide. It just right. wipes out all life that it comes into contact with. Um, and, and we had these ones. There was this dreadful one which they they were putting around everywhere in the fifties, wasn't it? Right. Which cause I think even to this day has caused terrible birth defects and yeah. all sorts of. I mean, it's quite interesting because I think you know, with science coming along, you know, humanity has this tendency to like to play God, and yet they 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 sort of barge into a situation going right. We have a problem. We've got too many. I don't know slugs or right. whatever. They're eating all of our food. Well, of course, they're eating all of our food. We've grown all this extra food, so they're going to be there. So we've got to get rid of them. They invent something, wipe out all the slugs. Of course, they wipe out all the slugs. The frogs have got nothing to eat. The birds right, have got nothing right. to eat. And there's all this, you know, we, we, we're like a bull in a china shop when it comes to uh, uh, conservation and understanding the, the delicate balance of nature, you know, something which has been... Uh, you know, honed over hundreds of millions of years, and then in we barge, we've had an idea. And it's quite, you know, it's a, I don't know whether it's, you know, stupidity, which it can be a lot of the time, I think, no matter how clever we often think we are, you know, we're not as clever as we, we, we think we are, well, I think. No, and, I think nature will always outwit us. I think that's the point. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, we've, we've only got to look at the um, problem. We invented all these wonderful antibiotics and then thought, right, we've got those, completely forgetting that there's this thing called evolution, where all the microbes and, uh, you know, bacteria that we were killed, well, they don't want to stay killed, do they? So they <laughs> have evolved to change to be able to survive. We don't even you know, have to do it with, yes, we don't even have to do it with chemicals. I mean... They introduced in Australia, they introduced something called the cane toad. It was to kill a specific thing that was perhaps eating sugar cane, and, and it didn't discriminate itself. It ate everything itself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> cane toads are still a problem. So, yes, yeah. And truck drivers crush them if they see them. There was a big oh. documentary about it and how to deal with a relatively or comparatively smaller ecological situation they went and completely distorted the balance of nature yeah, and that you you're see. exactly hit the nail on the head we 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 develop a an antibiotic and the virus adapts 
we discover a pesticide and we cause Lord knows what environmental damage. Yes. So, so yeah. nature will always find a way. Yeah, that's a great saying. It, it does. And this is what um, I, the doctor sort of hints at this, isn't it? Mm. Doesn't he? he sort of he has a, um, a more enlightened understanding of the way things work, which I thought thinking of Doctor Who's educational remit, isn't it? It's always meant to educate children. I thought this was not only ambitious in its um, in its props and scenery, as you pointed out, David, but it was ambitious in its scope of trying to get this idea across to young people of what's mm. happening you know so i thought it was it's quite honorable but i think we've it's also quite clunky isn't it right right well this sort of land of the giants type scenario was pretty common in the 60s i know the avengers did it mm. where steed and mrs peel were shrunk and had to I think the episode was called Mission Highly Improbable. I know it had Nicholas oh. Courtney in it, and, and it was a very similar sort of run-around caper of a, of a, um, a, a show. And uh, what else do we, Do you remember in Help, when they're trying to get the ring off of Ringo? And Victor oh, Spinetti's yes. got a shrinking ray. Oh, yes. Paul gets yes. hit by the shrinking ray, and he ends up wrapped in... Uh, Wrigley's chewing gum wrapper and sitting in an ashtray. Now that's one of the worst bits of that film. Yes. But yeah. people were always making oversized props, and yes. of course, Planet of Giants predates Help, and it predates ah. the Avengers in colour. Well, that's interesting. You see, were they copying the doctor? Because well, we have the, the have borrowers been. as well. Was I think the borrowers? Uh, yes, that was Ian yeah. Holm, wasn't it, a while ago? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's, I mean, we, you know, there's lots of sort of, a, it's, a, it's a bit of an amalgamation, I suppose, of uh, these things. Maybe um, Louis Marx. I mean, Louis Marx, the the original script, I remember that the writer of this mm -hmm. originally, wasn't it? He made several Doctor Who stories. I'm just um, He did Day of the Daleks. Oh, yes, Day of the Daleks, yeah. Um... And Planet of Evil. Right, yes, that was a good one. That was a cracker. And The Mask of Mandragora. I was going to say, did he do Mask of Mandragora? So so in terms of themes to this, mm. we, we've already said about, you know, the, the consequences of science. It's really a, a playoff between science versus profit, isn't it? And the ethics yeah. and where it's not ethical to make money because there's no doubt at all that Forrester is a very evil, ill-motivated opportunist. Mm. And that totally comes across in Terence Dix's writing, doesn't it? It, it does, absolutely. It's, it's quite interesting because I'm just reading the, um, the inside cover of the, of the new audio set. And um, it says that you, you did mention it earlier when it was published, but I didn't realise it says Doctor Who Planet of Giants was published in paperback on 18th of January 1990 by Virgin Publishing Limited. Right. So this really is one of the very latest. Well, it's not. It wasn't Target at all, is it? I suppose. Well, it it was a Target book. It yes. was a Target. It was a Target, yes. but I guess Virgin owned the brand by then. But yes, ah. it is a Target book for sure, and it's right. one of Terence's later, very late books. I mean, right. I remember this one, and I remember Space Pirates, which we've reviewed, and I remember Ambassadors of Death. 
as oh. well being really really late in the range and it's odd isn't it because as we got a sort of a mopping up operation at the end of the original target publications i feel now with the audio books we've got a bit of a mop up going as well because all the better books have already been cherry picked off in yes. my well, view aside from a few that are going to be coming through later in the year David. well a few later in the year maybe but um yeah. Yeah. I think we should mention her because we haven't yet, and that's Carol Ann Ford's reading of the book. What did you yes. think of her? Well, I, I, cause I don't, has she read a Doctor Who target novelization? I don't before? believe she has, no. No, no. Well, I was quite anticipating this, and, you know, um, this is a three-disc set, and um, I was actually rather pleased. She did a lot better than I was anticipating. Right. I thought she put yeah. I thought she put a lot of effort into it, and, I, and my notes here saying she characterizes every character, everybody who's in it. She comes across and she does a performance of that character, hmm. and I, I I think she's put a lot of vitality and effort into it. Hmm. Um, uh, the only problem is, and I don't know if it's her fault, and this is my big problem with the story. Disc one. It's it's good, you know. Mm-hmm. We we setting everything up. The characterization characterization is being set up. There's a good bit of story going on, and uh, we have all this these evil character coming across. But by disc two, and this does unfortunately carry right on. It um it slumps severely, doesn't it? Do you, right. do you think, David? I I agree. My note says CD one well paced and exciting within the mm-hmm. limitations of the material. CD2, OK, because it covers material from the televised adventure. And then yes. CD3, I've put, becomes tedious. Too yes. much focus on Hilda and Bert. Hilda's the telephonist at the village shop and Bert is the elderly policeman. And too much time is spent reminding us that Forrester is a thoroughly bad egg, mm. which we knew. Yes. So, so that was my appraisal. Um, so, so I think what you're saying is it's only a 3D set, but somehow it felt longer. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Uh, it was. It, 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 I mean, it's an awful thing to say, but it became tedious by disc three. Quite tedious. Right. Um, you know, we had this um, these scenes with uh, you know Fred and and uh, sorry with, um, with Bert, Bert and Bert and Bert Hilda. And Hilda. Yes, and Bert Hilda, Hilda outwits the bad guy. Who's committed yeah. a murder, which is, after all, a capital offence in 1964. So probably best send someone other than the elderly policeman to go and apprehend him, who only apprehends yeah. him by a fluke because the doctor's exploded a can of pesticide in his face and temporarily disorientated him. Yes, that's true, is that is. I mean, you know, we even though we have the inventiveness there of... Um, these uh, tricks that they're getting up to. What can they do to sort of try and thwart this, uh, this uh, you know, this evil character and uh, to reveal the evil plan that he's up to? It's still too much of how can we lift the, re- the receiver off the phone? How can we heat the, uh, you know... The, I mean, I suppose for somebody who is familiar with the science laboratory in a school... For children watching mm. this, this might be quite interesting. You know, mm. it might be 
uh, quite amusing, I suppose, to think mm. of those things with Bunsen burners and so forth. But it it, it just it was long winded with all, all of right. that. I felt, you know, it all could right. have been sped up. Do you do you think then? Because I, I interrupted you before you were about to say what you thought of Carol Ann Ford. Right. Generation. Well, yes, I can I can say a few things about Carol Ann Ford. She, I'm not aware that she has read another book in this range. So I wrote in my notes a sterling debut oh. with not particularly strong material. Gives everything to her delivery of the discovery of the giant ant at the end of chapter two and the unexpected appearance of an enormous cat at the end of chapter five, which is episode one's cliffhanger. And I think she would have sold those moments without the overly dramatic music that appeared in the soundscape as well. So I was pretty impressed by her and I totally take your point and agree with your point that she does actually characterise people. She does what I would call a slightly snide voice for Forrester just to sell the fact mm. that he's duplicitous and nasty and obviously she she raises the um, pitch of her voice to deliver Susan which is she can still do and she does I like that that was still, good doesn't she it? still got it the doctor's a distinct character as well isn't he in there and yeah and um I, I do have an issue with the characterization of Barbara but it's not Karen Ann Ford's actual fault it's in the it's come down through the writing from the original script, but we'll probably get onto that a bit later. So, That's so yes, I, I was. Yeah, I noticed that too. I noticed that I with was Barbara. Yeah, impressed with Carol Ann Ford, and as I say, she does do a sterling debut in this story. Yeah, yeah I'm really glad to you you feel like that because I, I felt too. I, I, you know, within a few minutes of listening to this disc, I thought, oh, fair play, she's really. Uh, you know, she's really given it something. I'm really quite impressed at her. Well mm. done to Carol Ford for that. Really good. Yeah. Um, like you say, it would be nice to hear her um, narrating a target with some, you know, a better, better material. I think I'm probably being unfair to Terence Dix to suggest that this is a pedestrian attempt at writing a Doctor Who, but... It's not one of the most fondly remembered Doctor Who's, that's for certain. Mm. And mm. and as you know, we love Terence. We think yeah. he's brilliant. And we can't say bad things about him because he is an integral part of our childhoods. Oh, absolutely. So we're not going to yeah. say that. One thing that I did find rather disturbing in the story, to return to the story, was... Um, it had the inventor, Smithers, who, who was actually quite well motivated because he wanted to end world famine. So mm -hmm. so he was he was not in it for the dosh. He was in it for the Nobel Prize, I think. And yeah. why on earth? this this um, The first thing they discover is a dead bumblebee. Yeah. Now, if you invent something and the first thing you kill is a pollinator, <laughs> you're asking for trouble, aren't you? Yes, you, you, yeah. you know, why Why on earth did he think that this was going to be a winning formula? Well, the, I, this is the problem, isn't it? I think um, I think we have, I think Louis Marx has written a story here, which um, it has all the ingredients for a really good Doctor Who story. You know, it, it has that educational aspect. 
it has the topicality, it has the sense of adventure aspect, mm -hmm. it has um, these characters and good against evil. and what's... It's got all the ingredients there for a really good, fun story. But the way it's put together and some of the consequences of some of these actions, they don't sit uh, nicely together, do they? It seems no. all a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say hacked, but... Uh, it, it, it all seems, as you say, it's pointed out, it's just a bit daft, isn't it? Yes, but I've pointed out some other examples mm. of this Land of the Giants theme being used in 60s television. So it's no dafter than any of those, really. No, no. <laughs> no perhaps I didn't yeah. explain myself. By, by dad, what I meant was the um, the realisation of these um, these issues, you know, instead right. of... Uh, they they were sort of a little bit uh, I don't know like you said with the with the with the bee there that should have been something which uh, you know like you say he picked up on straight away I mean he is uh, an expert in this field obviously he, so he is I mean I think we should um, praise Terence's characterization of of a few of the folk that we meet in this book I mean Forrester mm. we're left in no doubt how evil he is and I also thought he gave a good characterization of the civil servant Pharaoh yes. gave him a bit of backstory with his boat and his cat and actually, I like that, you see great at that, yeah, a bit it? of backstory you know? and I would have liked perhaps Bert to have seen military combat to have made me feel he was more capable of taking the murderer down the station, uh, you know it would yeah, have been nice, yeah. but there you go but I did think that Pharaoh had integrity and yeah. i did think smithers he you know as i said he seems to be motivated by winning a nobel prize for solving the world's food shortage and he had this sort of damascene conversion didn't he, he was he was like picking away at forrester's conscience a lot mm. and yes. saying i wouldn't tell that to the police if i were you there's no you know, whatever gunpowder, whatever the shot the issue with the shot was, and he he sort of realised the game was up and and turned turned to the side of good again, which I thought yes. was rather fortunate, really. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, one of them's yeah. going to get the rope. I'm telling you, one of them's <laughs> got to go. Yep. Yeah. So so I enjoyed that in Terence's writing. So yeah, so, yeah. So that was all. I, I enjoyed. All good. So what, going back to you mentioned Barbara earlier and her characterization in this book. So what what was um, it struck me when I was going through because we have this. It's quite a serious plot element actually, isn't it? Where mm. she knows she's come into contact with the DN six, mm. but she doesn't tell anyone. She's quite. Um, stoic in in wanting to soldier on isn't she yeah she is perhaps too much so yes yeah but and she does get a bit his... whiny doesn't she if we're honest yeah she does and she does have temper tantrums right now it, this it, is the point yeah. i'm getting to yeah go on david no no, no 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 you make your point well i you know i was always rather impressed with the character of barbara i mean if you think how Women were portrayed, um, you know, on TV in the 60s. I thought the companions, well, we, we know that Susan's character ended up not, you know, much weaker than it was intended to be. But the characters of Barbara and Ian uh, were absolutely superb. And Barbara, she's a, such a strong 
um, you know, intelligent character that she seems to be not written correctly in this story. Her behaviour doesn't seem to match the, you know, how she is in most episodes. Would you agree with that? I, I agree. She's not very Barbaresque in this. She's a bit... She's a, she's the one with the weak ankle, the ankle that gets hit by the paperclip. Yeah. Apparently, I'm going next time I turn my ankle, I'm going to try this because apparently the cure for that is water. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I learned. So, yeah, educational. I learned something. You know, have you yeah. have it if you're thirsty, and you have it if you've got an ankle sprain. She needed <laughs> well, ice, in dark and compression and elevation. It? That's that's the thing for a turned ankle. <laughs> never mind, never mind. But yeah, she does come across as a bit feeble and a bit irritating. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which is actually Susan's role. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually quite true, isn't it? There's a reversal of the roles here, which mm. is, um, you know, it, it, it messes the whole characterization up. I mean... It would have been better to have beefed up Susan's um, role rather than pinching Barbara's, isn't it? Right. Well, I think <laughs> yes, I think I think Susan is the innocent that looks to others for protection in the mm. team, isn't she? She's the yes. vulnerable character, and that's yes. how she's written frequently. Yeah. Do you do you think David as well? Going back to the to the story to the plotting, you know, it. As I say, with this disc one, which encompasses, is it is it roughly episode one? I suppose is it. I uh... think that's true because I think episode one and the telly ends with the discovery of Pharaoh's body and the appearance of the cat yes, in close up, right. and the episode two ends with them down the plug hole, and you think that the man letting the water out the sink has washed the Doctor and Susan away. So yes. I think broadly. Disc one is episode one plus a bit of, plus it spills over into a bit of disc two. Disc two sort of finishes a, a disc later, and then mm. the amalgam episode of three and four are pretty much the third disc. Mm. And that's you, you, that's when I started to lose interest on the third disc, as we've said. Yes, yes. And this is where the plot veers quite a bit from, uh, you know, the the actual premise of the story, doesn't it, really? Mm. We get into these, um, the characters, you know, the, the, the telephone operator, Hilda and, and Bert, the policeman, and it's all, it, it's all, it, it all goes, well, down the plank hole, I suppose. What we're saying, <laughs> we've gone from ecological thriller to kitchen sink drama. It's yeah. more like a scene from old Zed cars, isn't it? Exactly, that's that's beautifully put, David. Yeah, and that and that's what I feel. You know, it's so disjointed this story that um, the the way it's been amalgamated isn't uh, something. It doesn't gel together. There are elements which are, uh, you know, really interesting and have the potential to be a really exciting story. But even you know the the, the magic pen of Terence Dix, I think has struggled to sort of make this into right. a, a wholly um, uh, enjoyable book, I think. Right. Well, one thing one thing Terence did use his magic pen for was to... Um, well, he did a very short prologue, didn't he? In which he, oh, yeah. he introduced the idea of the cottage and he, he promises a grotesque, terrifying adventure. Oh, his words, yes. not mine. Yeah. 
so there you go. He gave us yeah. all the familiar stuff. He gave us the doctor's aristocratic beak of a nose and eyes blazing with fierce intelligence. I love that's that. That's why we love Terence, isn't it? Pithy descriptions. Yeah. Yeah. On. And, and that I remember um, uh, Caroline Ford's narration of this is very, very spot on, isn't it? She's, mm. she's really reading and listening to what she's saying here, mm. isn't it? It's no, uh, she's not just reading this straight from the page. She? No, no, she's interpreting is the thing, yeah. isn't it? Very good. Do you know, it's quite interesting you said that actually, because I'm just reading. Because once again, the the actual DVD, uh, sorry, the CD audio presentation is a is a lovely thing again. We have that beautiful illustration of the, oh, the Alistair cover. Pearson's cover. Yes, yes, that's a thing great. of beauty, isn't it? Yeah, he's really captured William Hartnell there beautifully, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, it's a really nice cover again. But again, with the notes on the inside, we have. Um, it says in here, um, it's the shortest book in the entire target range. Right. It had no reprints and no foreign translations were ever made. Right. So I'm guessing it wasn't really a hit. Right. Um, what gives you that idea? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we took that. Can we go to as well? I mean, something I know we are. I think very... the other. I will just in in Terence's defence. I think I have to say this. You have to remember that in 1990, Doctor Who, the television show, is recently defunct. It's moribund. Oh. So you know, there's no reason for people to be connecting with Target novelizations. Yeah. By that stage, I think we're all looking to video, aren't we? Yes. To for yes. our Doctor Who hit. And yeah. you know, there's no there's no product, no on the telly. No. But sorry, I yeah. interrupted you there. But I no, felt no, I that's a very offer, good point. Actually, offer that because um, I was being a little no, I, I was being a bit scathing with that little read in those comments. But of course, we know the scenario we have. You know, we we expecting um, a novelization of a 1964 television episode where the series. Has no longer been on TV for years. <laughs> well, be, for a year. To be a yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it but it's not. Be, it's not the new Dan Brown, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, sorry, the ne- or the next instalment of Fifty Shades of Grey, or whatever. Oh gosh, yeah. the thought, the thought of it. The thought of it. Um, back to you. Did mention it earlier? No, I've I've just seen one of my notes here. Um, now the soundscape, David. Oh, now. No, yes, it was quite interesting um, at the beginning. With the we have the birds and we have this quite idyllic background to it with the cottage, don't we? No, we did. Yes. Well, what do you think? Well, I thought yes. I obviously there were a few howlers in the soundscape, as there always are, but mm. it was measured. And when it wasn't measured, I could sort of accept it within the context of the story, in that. For example, when Ian is being tossed around in the matchbox or when the crew are menaced by this domestic cat with the footfall of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, I'm assuming that we're hearing their interpretations of the sound, which are bigger and scarier than reality. So that was fine. I didn't mind that at all. But as usual, there are people collapsing like sacks of spuds and... (laughs) All the usual irritations are in there, but I would say it's 
it's one of the better ones that we've heard. Yeah. One of yeah. the better ones. And and I felt um, very much like you know, I got in my notes here that um that even though we had these, you know, that when people fall in the floor, like you said, it's like a huge sack, I suppose. Yeah. But it does it's very much in keeping with their diminished size, isn't it? Oh yes, that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's noisy. But yeah. we can almost say, oh, well, it's deliberately noisy because they're an inch tall. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I thought that was that was quite effective. And as you say, you know, it's, uh, you know, it wasn't intrusive because it did match what was going on in the story. So, mm. I, 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 you know, I, I quite like that. Um, I also noticed that um, some of the, um, uh, you know, some of the characterizations. Um, I, I don't know whether it's Terence or Louis Marx. I'm guessing Terence. He's got the character of the first Doctor spot on. I like that bit when um, Susan keeps pointing out that the Doctor seems really interested in what would have happened to them if they had been poisoned. He really wants to right. know what, what's going to happen. <laughs> and that that is the sort of dangerous daring do of this first Doctor, isn't it? Yeah. He's quite happy to put them in peril, isn't he? No, he doesn't mind, no. Yeah, he's like, oh, we'll sort it out afterwards. Let's just see what will happen, you know. Well, funny, funny you should say that because this is this is the Capaldi doctor's problem right at the moment, and we're yes. not quite sure how he's going to get out of it. But he yeah. has willingly placed companions in mortal peril, mm. and and yeah. you're right, it's very Hartnell esque in 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 the sheer irresponsibility of doing that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's true, isn't it? It's, that's really interesting, actually, that we've got this um, circular feel to it. The character's spot on, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, overall, David, I mean, what sort of score were you thinking of giving Planets of Giants? Well, do you know, our chat, if, at, at first I was looking at sort of downsides of the of the book, like the lengthy recap that Terence's magic pen delivers that really focuses on Reign of Terror, and the physics aspect which I didn't get and the fact that I didn't know whether the civil servant Pharaoh's cat was okay after his murder which really distressed me that's a good point actually yes there's a bit in Terence's writing where it says the doctor drew himself up and you think what to his full inch (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was quite funny the whininess of Barbara and the fact that she has Mm. um, disproportionate terror when being menaced by the giant fly. I mean, I've seen flies, and they're never bigger than an inch. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so that that was the case against the material, but I did like Carol Ann Ford. I did like the soundscape. I had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the incidental music, but uh, there you go. I loved the cover. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I loved yeah. the first disc. Yeah, and in terms of my score, I think you've talked me to a point where I am now prepared to give it six point five. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad of that because I, it it does have merits, doesn't it? It does it have does. merits. It, it, it's, yeah. it's prescient. That's what yes. it is. Yeah, that's nicely described. I, I, it is, and I think it's certainly not one which um, I, I haven't come to this um, going. Oh gosh, I you know this. I don't like this at all. It's a, it's got it's got faults, but it's got a lot of merits too. And um, I I enjoyed listening, especially that first disc to Carol Ann Ford sort of mm. throwing herself into this. And mm. I hope she's given um, one of her original stories 
Mm. Um, to be able to do because have we got any have we got any left we well Marco look? Polo hasn't been done has it oh Keys of Marinus hasn't been done no those could be great I, no, I actually Reign of Terror hasn't been done oh you see so you there see are three this? there for a start well there are three basically because everything else has now been done if well, memory serves I look forward to that that would be great if she could uh, put you know the same sort of vigour and uh characterization and effort into doing those um you know stories which are full of uh, different characters and scenes you know so it's, it's a really good worker for her that would be i think mm. you know so yeah um well for my score i think i'm gonna match you with the 6.5 because you pointed out again a few things to me which i which i missed which i'm very pleased with you know i, I do like that characterization that uh, Terence Dix has given the sort of little bits of backstory, mm. especially about the yacht when he's talking mm. about, oh, just one more day and I'll be on that yacht with <laughs> the wind in my hair, he's saying, isn't he? You know, and uh, I quite like that. So yeah, I, I'm going to give it a six point five, and I, I certainly would recommend it. You've got you've got to buy it for the collection, haven't you? Absolutely, no, it's it's a thing of beauty. It has to well, be experienced. Yes, definitely. So that was that was you know there was a lot of enjoyment to be had out of that. And Indeed, David, can you tell us what we've got coming up over the next couple of weeks? In terms of our podcasting, well, yeah. I've had this idea that we should go back to the very beginning of the target range, and we'll do a classic, or for us, a classic podcast, where we'll look at one of the earliest readings because we currently do the new releases. Yes. So I was. We haven't quite decided, and of course we still have to do Talons of Wang Chang, just oh. as soon as that's sent to us, because yes. we've, we've been yeah. promising to do that one for ages. But I'm, I've got a few stories in mind, Giant Robot, read by Tom Baker. I'd oh, be very you. happy to review Green Death, read by Katie Manning. That's where oh. the giant fly from Planet of Giants gets some more work. And I'd also be very pleased to review, because I loved it, Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, read by Geoffrey Beavers. So if anybody wants to email in and and say which one of those three, Giant Robot, Doomsday Weapon or Green Death, would they like us to review, we'd be very happy to receive suggestions. And we can also promise that we'll be reviewing the season finale just as soon as it airs, the season 10 finale. We're going to be doing that straight away, David, aren't we? We're going to be getting that straight out. And, um, I, you know, David, I'm going to put you on the spot again because um, Penguin Random House and BBC Audio have very kindly provided us with a competition copy of Planet of Giants. Uh-oh. So, while you, you know what's coming up next, David. Well, I do. Yeah, we'll I <laughs> So we would love um, to hear um, people email us or tweet us to try and win this copy. And um, I think I've given David enough time now to conjure up out of thin air Um, a really interesting question. Mm. So, David, what what does the listener have to do to win a lovely brand new copy of Planter Giants? Right, well, I'm... Thinking out loud here, but we've already said that episode three is an amalgam of two directors' work for Planet of Giants. And what I want to know, only one director is credited on the finished product, 
and I want to know the names of both directors of Planet of Giants. Gosh, you're making them work for this, Dave, isn't you? No, That's both directors. Well, it's not that difficult, I promise. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I want to know who directed Planet of Giants, episode three. Both names. Oh, that's excellent. Should we go? Are we going to give a time limit? Um, well, well, let's say that we will. Two weeks from the issue of this podcast, we'll draw a winner at random. How about that? That's fabulous. That's a great idea. Really great. And we'd absolutely love people to email us or tweet us and let let us know what they think of these or which Doctor Who's target they, they you know they'd like us to review. If, if we can source it, we'll review it. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, I really enjoyed uh, talking about this one, and um, I'm looking forward now to next Sunday's, well, we hope we can do it on Sunday's, review of the final story in the Peter Capaldi season. Yes, The Doctor Falls. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target. Or email us at DoctorWhoOnTarget at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies, and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners. Thank you.